Welcome to the Optimize Your Capacity podcast, where our goal is to help educate health and fitness professionals, as well as the general population, reach their ultimate capacity on any and all fronts. What can you do to optimize your capacity? How's it going, everybody? We have a fun podcast today where we're sitting down with the Oregon National Strength and Conditioning Association Board, where there are going to be four of us discussing a roundtable discussion. By that, I mean we are going to be having questions that were pulled from social media networks from NSCA members for our board directors. So our board of directors come from the private sector, educational sector, uh, professional, uh, as well as like the health and wellness uh, sector as well. So we've got a diverse group. Uh, so the group entails Cisco Reyes, who's a Linfield professor, professor, and he's also the director and owner of Rise Training Lab. We have Eric Jernstam, who runs E-Force Sports Performance. We have Michael Watts, who's out of Under Armour, based out of Portland who has a lot of cool experience also including in the professional sector and myself, uh, Nick, who is a physical therapist and strength coach as well. We are missing one of our directors, uh, Ryan Lockhart, who runs specialty athletic training, but he was not able to attend today, but just want to note him and thank him for all his contributions. But anyway, the topics we talk about today are kind of diverse. We go over career subjects, meaning advice if you're trying to build your strength and wellness career. We go over such things as tendinopathy, speed development, movement efficiency, uh, doing what's best for the client versus what the client thinks is best. So a lot of cool topics. Get to hear a lot of unique viewpoints uh, from not only educated gentlemen, but also just good, well-rounded individuals. So I really think you'll appreciate the podcast today. Uh, and again, I want to thank all the gentlemen for their, their time and contribution. All right, everybody. So this should be, uh, should be fun today. Um, little something different, get a group discussion going. We have all but one of our members of the Oregon NSCA, uh, board here. So we have Cisco Reyes from Linfield college and owner of rise. Fitness. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Cisco, is that, is it rise? What just rise? The rise lab. The rise lab. Thank you. Uh, we have Eric Jernstam of E4 sports performance. We have Michael Watts of under armor. Um, we have myself who's PT and, uh, part of the NSCA board, Nick Hagan out in Bend, Oregon and capacity. Um, anyway, we just got a, a room quote unquote of smart people who I wanted to, have us have a chance to answer some questions that our members provided. So we kind of pulled some questions from members. Um, before we get into that, though, I don't want to necessarily have everybody give a bio that would get tedious, but I want each person to go around and just say like one person who was influential in their career path on how they got to where they're at right now. I'll go first because I'm putting you on the spot and then I'll let you guys go. Um, and maybe this is somebody who, yeah, again, can help where you're at today, this is someone who is a large part of that. Um, so for me, uh, I might say too, I guess I'm cheating. So my PT person, his name's Greg Johnson. Uh, he basically took 
the world of PNF, which is proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation, which is just like a really sweet way to get initiation and strength going and combine it with manual therapy. So it's like active manual therapy. He was like a huge mentor in my PT world. Um, and then in the, the, my strength world mentor, I've had quite a few, um, but one of my like original people who really kind of shaped on some of my sports training world with the folks down at uh, P3 Sports Performance in Santa Barbara. Um, There's like a whole crew of different coaches there, but it was kind of early in my process. And I kind of learned a lot of the systematic approach to strength and conditioning. Um, but that's two of the larger influences in lace, my early part of my career. Cisco, what if I put you on the spot? Do you have a someone who was influential in your development? Uh, yeah, I mean... Um... I think, I think the first person would be my dad, uh, you know, growing up, you know, you don't really understand the rhymes or reasons behind what your parents are teaching you until you become an adult and a professional as well. So, um, you know, my dad displayed a lot of, you know, sacrifice when I was growing up, you know, he displayed hard work and discipline, um, all those things that I value now. Um, and I think the other person that's been influential for me, uh, his name is Dr. Matt Silvers. And he's a professor out at Whitworth College. And um, he was a year ahead of me in our grad program. Um, and it really extends beyond just the X's and O's of exercise science and seeing him go through, you know, what it's like to be a PhD student, eventually a professional, but um, just how he lives life, um, the zest that he has for life, the way he treats his family, the way he treats everybody else around him. You know, he's always been a role model for me. Um, and so everything that I do, everything that I, you know, professionally and personally, I always try to think of like what Matt ex exemplifies and what my dad obviously has exemplified and taught as well. So I think those are two individuals that have really been, you know, people that I try and follow and emulate um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Your answers are better than mine. They're more heartfelt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michael, what's your, what are your answers? So I think initially when I started back in 2003, something like that within this industry, um, uh, Dr. Michael Clark was somebody who I um, studied a lot, read a lot around, and, and he was the, the founder of um, the NESM. And I've been fortunate enough to actually meet uh, Dr. Clark and work with him recently. And He's really been a, a red thread through my philosophy, I'd say, around um, screening and, and conditioning. So he, he's been very influential. Um, and, and then in terms of like an overall mentor, I've been very lucky through my career that I've had people, but um, a, a, a guy called Paul Winsper, who, who lives here in Portland, Oregon, has been really influential and supportive on my career in the last five or six years. I came from pro sport, which is very traditional in a sense of how they view and approach training and performance. And you could call it a performance at all cost type of measure. And since I've been working for Paul, he's really enabled me to fly and start looking at what, what we would class as maybe more of an integrated approach, looking at health and wellness and looking at longevity of an athlete not just for their sport but also for their life and then that's led me down many pathways to meet many different experts and people who 
are doing some amazing research and, and, and I'll throw one name out there, a guy called Patrick McKeown and people may be aware of Patrick and Patrick's work on breathing and I've sort of known Patrick for about five years and gone through his accreditation and become one of his master instructors. And really you go back five years and nobody was talking about breath work for performance or for vagal tone and Patrick was sort of banging this drum and now it's a little bit more in in the media and maybe in the mainstream but still not and and, and there's been some amazing people and and being in 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 Oregon Portland I've managed to meet people on the board here and spend time with people even do a little bit of research with with Cisco as well so it's it's been amazing to be able to transition from the UK well China originally to the UK to the US to start to see different ways of doing things and meeting different people and and it really is um, great just to increase your range and get out there and meet different people yeah yeah well said Uh, what about you Eric Uh, yeah I mean I think really early on I got to pay a lot of credit to Brian Miller who was the first guy to really take a chance on me and bring me under his wing so he was at the time the director of sports performance at Oregon State who gave me my first opportunity to get my feet wet as only 19 years old as an intern which was unbelievable experience and kind of guide me through that path and then two other guys that kind of fall into the same realm is Ryan DePaul and Alex Brink they're both my business partners at eForce and they kind of painted the picture that there's a big opportunity in the private sector for sports performance and strength and conditioning. Um, if you can start to wrap your head around the business side of things, which is a little bit taboo to talk about, I feel like in our industry, finances, business, and, yeah. and money in general. Um, and so they really helped me conceptualize a business model around the performance models that we had. So that, that was huge for me to kind of, you know, set my roots in what we're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sweet. So just to put it in perspective, we have Cisco, who's kind of in like the educational sector. He also does the private sector as well. We have Eric, who's more in the private sector. I'm a little bit more in like the health and wellness. Michael, what would you describe yourself? Of course, that, that's a great question. Well, I came from um, 12 years, well, three, I had three years prior in what you call healthcare, health sector of like yeah. that type, then 12 years in professional soccer and then five years working for a brand, working with elite level athletes, but researchers and getting to spend time with people like Cisco and, yeah. and, and pick their brains on, on sort of what they know and what they studied. So um, pretty, pretty wide spanning really. And, and, and still to this day, like can work with a professional athlete going to the Olympics or somebody who, who is part of a run crew. So it, it's pretty yeah. diverse now. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, I think we got a like a good diverse panel here. So let's get into these questions. Again, these are questions that were asked kind of on social media platforms. Um, I'll probably tee up one of you guys to answer them just to initiate the discussion, but feel free to kind of <clears throat> add insights wherever you see fit. So <clears throat> the first question is kind of a, a career-based question is, if you were a young strength coach again, and you were going to start your career all over, so if Eric was 19 all over again, or if Cisco is graduating from Idaho again, what would you maybe have done differently or what would you have emphasized even more of to kickstart your career to hopefully whatever, have 
more ease to get where you were currently at? Is there something you would have done sooner or differently in your early career to help facilitate your career development? Um, good question. Probably a pretty standard question that younger professionals have. Um, Cisco, can I put you on the spot again? Is there something you, if you're talking to a younger professional that you would recommend? Yeah. I mean, I think it's actually fitting because um, like you said, being in the you know, the, the academic realm, I mean, I get asked this question on a, on a regular basis from, from college students of number one, like, how did you get started? But then just exactly that same question is like, what would you do differently that maybe I can do that you didn't have the opportunity to do or you missed out on? And um, my, my, my common answer that I tell young students and young professionals is to be willing to step out of your comfort zone and just try a variety of different things, you know, in, in the fact that you may not think it's related to strength and conditioning, or you may not think it's related to physical therapy, but going on that study abroad trip or working at that, you know, odd job over the summertime, those are all experiences that will actually help you become a better professional and give you a very diverse outlook on life in general. But when you are working as a strength and conditioning coach, you will have, you'll be, you'll be, you'll become a problem solver because you'll have so many different experiences that you'll be able to pull from um, and really help, you know, that one instance of that, you know, athlete that's just not quite understanding, you know, the speed cue or the weight room cue um, and finding a way to relate to that person. Um, you know, and for me, when I was an undergrad, I was the complete opposite. I just did everything that was comfortable. I didn't do you know, um, internships, I didn't do volunteer work, because I just didn't want to do it. it just wasn't fitting into my personal agenda at that time, which as you can imagine, a 20 year old, I mean, what kind of agenda do you have when you're when you're 20, when you're 20 years old, but, um, and I look at some of my students now, and I'm extremely jealous, I'll be honest with you, of some of the things that they're doing, because again, like they're studying abroad, they're doing multiple internships without being told to do it, they, this is something that they want to do, and and I think to myself, gosh, when you graduate, you know, at 21, 22 years old, you've got all of these experience under your belt. And I really had two things. I had baseball and I had school, like that's all I had. And I had nothing else. And I kind of caught on late in the game when it comes to, um, you know, professional work and what it's like to be a professional and listening to Eric talk about being 19. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, he stepped out of his comfort zone, walked into the weight room and was like, hey, this is something I want to try. And Coach Miller was like, yeah, come on in. Let me show you the ropes and, you know, and look, look at Eric as a professional, you know, now. And I look at Mike as another one who's been all over the world doing different things with different athletes. So that's kind of the, 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 the theme that I try and share with young professionals is expand your horizons, do a lot of different things, be willing to do things for no money, um, because those will all, those are all investments that will pay off, you know, in, in, in the long run. I never really thought of it before, but do you feel like you, th you say early specialization in sports, do you think people do that in their career too much? Um, I, that? Like they like they're 17, they're yeah. what they do and they don't diversify their. Yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah. We get, you know, like I get the freshman, right. I get my, my freshman advisees that come and fall and they're like dead set. Like I want to become a physical therapist. And yeah. the more you talk with them, it's like, okay, that's a great occupation to get into. Yeah. But during your four years here, try not to just be so focused on physical therapy because you might miss yes. something that is discussed in class, or you might miss that opportunity, that email that comes across from our department chair about, 
an internship opportunity with, you know, the Portland trailblazers that yeah. may not be physical therapy, but you're just like, ah, that's not what I want to do though. Yeah. Um, and you completely miss it and you don't know what kind of door that would open for you. So, you know, it, it, you bring up that analogy and I think you can be right as some young kids or, you know, college, even high school, they focus on that one occupation because that's what they heard. That's what they saw. That's what a family member did or whatever. Yeah. And completely miss other things that are, that are around them. What about you, Eric? What would you do differently or emphasize more in your young career? Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think Cisco nailed it on the head. I think I kind of had an idea of what I really wanted to do and kind of over-specialized pretty quick. I was really dead set on the collegiate sector and it wasn't until I was forced to look other ways that I recognized that the private sector was a truly viable option. Um, but kind of carrying on that note, I think the biggest thing that I wish I would have done better and that I advise a lot of people to do is just like, just network, network, network. Like you, I argue are one standard deviation off of knowing everybody and you do not know who you're going to bump elbows with, who's going to get you a job somewhere. Like there's even guys that when I was an intern at Oregon state who played there that I now leverage that relationship with to help some of the kids I train get recruited. Cause now they're GAs at colleges that I would have never thought I would have talked to before. Or I thought there were guys who were kind of a pain in the ass to work with who are now coaching at universities who are a valuable resource to me that if I didn't maintain a professional relationship with them, it wouldn't accelerate my career or extend myself to be able to have bigger conversations or kind of open up new windows of opportunity. So I think just network and not like, Hey, I met this guy one time, but like, get a phone number. Like people are kind of scared to like really get phone numbers or like try to set stuff up. So I really think networking is just huge that people really need to take advantage of. Great. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Michael, I'm going to save the next question for you. You ready? Yeah. Uh, this one was in regards to an endurance athlete. So we're going to pivot off of career stuff. It says, what are your recommendations in management of the endurance athletes, specifically runners? What have you found successful to reduce injury and improve performance? So, I mean, I think we could take that to biking or any other endurance yeah. thing, but what are some pillars? If you're about to train a more endurance-based athlete, what are some things you want <clears throat> to make sure you check off or address or assess or train? Yeah. So, so big question. I think, the first and foremost is periodizing your training and getting getting that right, having a plan and thinking, what does this training block look like? What, what am I going to work on uh, both for endurance and also resistance? Because don't forget, like we see that if endurance athletes do resistance work, strength work, they, they have better performance and, and sort of reduced risk of injury. I think you can then take one or two approaches. You can be more static in in your periodization and to say, this is my plan and I'll do this for five weeks. Or you could look at something that's a little bit more dynamic and think um, I might use some data to to guide me here. So I might use heart rate variability or I might use subjective um, SRQs just just to guide me to say, should I go hard today or should I ease off? So that's one part. Big, big mistake I see most endurance athletes do is not put recovery in there. Um, don't they, whether that be completely off the feet, off the bike, or at least having some sessions that are not so sort of intense, that's probably a big mistake I see. Look, I see a lot of junk miles, like that's often spoken about, whether it be stuff's like in the middle. So, so when we talk about 
endurance, they're oft, often in zones like zone one, zone two, zone three, zone four, zone five. And you'll find a lot of the research will, will say, well, spend majority of your time in the lower zones and then small amount of your time in the high zones, but try and avoid like the middle zones because they create a ton of fatigue and they don't create a ton of adaptation. So you've almost created more fatigue and less adaptation. I think something exciting before I go to like the last part is, is definitely the breathing for endurance. We're seeing if we can increase how functional somebody is in their breathing, we can actually um, delay the onset of fatigue. Um, we can increase the amount of oxygen to, to the working tissue all by basically increasing somebody's tolerance to, to CO2. And then when it comes to reducing the risk of injury, um, for, for a runner, I, I've, I've probably screened and tested around 1,200 runners uh, as, as my own research. Yeah, <laughs> it's a few. It's a few. And, 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 and that's ranging from 400-meter Olympic athletes to marathon runners to people wanting to do Boston Marathon to people just wanting to run three miles a week to trail runners to ultra-endurance. And these are the statistics that I'm finding. 85% of all those runners have some kind of foot and ankle compensation. 95% have some kind of thoracic issue. And I think it's 92% have some kind of lumbo-pelvic hip complex issue. And really, what does that mean? It, it means that endurance athletes usually just do that to train so a cyclist just cycles and a runner just runs and i think what we'd all agree on is more of this integrated approach to say your self-care is super important so think about how you're gonna um re really make sure that you, you've got good length and tension relationships and good tissue quality um Think about your kinetic chain. Think, think like what's going on at your foot and ankle is going to affect what goes on at your hip. If your glutes not firing correctly, that could lead into a foot and ankle issue. And I see a lot of people are familiar to foam rolling and stretching and, and all these things that are sort of emerging now, but we don't really follow the science. And, and that's where I see people maybe getting frustrated because they don't have an evidence-based approach. And I think that would be a big one to call out is to say, be disciplined enough to stick to the sides and have more of an evidence-based approach. And one of the really common things, which maybe it, it is a big issue is, is, is nutrition and fueling strategies. And I think traditionally in endurance, it's been very heavily carbohydrate driven. Um, we're starting to see research and science now. And, and there's, again, there's always two sides. Like you get your Louise Burks who want to push on carbohydrate and you might get like your Lauren Cordain who's pushing more like high fat diets. But there's usually a middle ground, but we're seeing a lot of gut permeability and, and gut issues in endurance athletes because they are consuming lots of gluten. They're consuming lots of sugar and they're getting lots of um, GI problems. And that's not only leading to problems absorbing like vital nutrients and minerals to help them recover and perform, 
but then we can start leading into things like leaky gut and, and what leaky gut starts to bring us even down to like mood state. And if we start changing someone's mood state, what's their desire or appetite to train? So I think, I think it's a massive question that really is. Yeah. But yeah. That, that's a few things. And maybe I'll pause. <laughs> if, if you don't, yeah, if you don't mind, uh, I had a unique opportunity for working for a year as an outside consultant for a professional track track club here in, in the Portland area. And uh, one thing I really recognize, and, and Michael, you hammered home is the lack of variety within the training plan annually. You know, they had a, they were chronically a high volume track club who ran large amounts of volumes, like just across the board with no real taper off at any point in the year. And, you know, every other training modality was secondary to running and running was the only way to get fit and was the only way to get fast and was the only way to get prepared. And you know, I've made a big argument of, you know, leveraging just general elastic development um, through the ankle complex, you know, general uh, hamstring tendon and health, and then working on just generalized periods of lower volume running with the idea of cross training and working more on just like central capacity building of like, you know, the left ventricle, you know, building up their anaerobic threshold, things like that in what it means that would not, you know, degrade them so that when they did come back to running, they could kind of potentiate those generally developed qualities into the specificity of the sport without, you know, picking up these injuries left and right and always running injured. It's so hard though. It's such a hard, not saying you're wrong, but I mean, the runner just thinks I got to run more to get better at it. Uh, there's a clear point of diminishing returns where that extra five to 10 miles that week actually made you worse rather than better, but they just can't grasp that concept. And that's ideally where we come into play, but even that's, it's a hard sell. I mean, my wife's like an ultra marathoner. So she'll go on like an 80 mile run on the weekend. And I'm like, what are you, <laughs> what are we achieving here? What's the goal? And then there's no plan. Yeah. It's just like run, run, run. And then once tomorrow comes more running, um, but I think you guys nailed it. I think maybe the other thing that wasn't hit on was just that maybe you guys said it. It's just such a linear activity usually um, that they just don't have any rotatory or like frontal plane control. They usually stink at single leg things. Um, so anyway, let's, let's move on to, to the next question. We'll keep things clipping along here. Um, one that I got, which I guess is right down my alley is uh, – <clears throat> How, what are recommendations of management of an Achilles tendinopathy or just a tendinopathy in, in general? Um, I'd love to hear your guys' insights too, but the interesting thing, at least with the evidence-based approach on any sort of tendon issue is like every five years, it completely flips. And that's often the case with a lot with evidence. So I don't know, mid to late 2000 single digits, it was all like eccentrics. Like all you do if you have a tendon issue is loaded eccentrically that will realign fibers and get thicker tendons and everything will get fixed. Um, and then the last like three to four years, what picked up a lot of bud was, or buzz was uh, isometrics. So like prolonged holds to ideally create constant loading into the tendon, which creates circulation, which in theory relays down fibers and causes healing. Um, you guys might agree with this, but usually with most topics, the middle ground is the most accurate thing. So one singular thing is usually not the answer. And there'll be a research study that supports something and everybody hops on that bus. But usually it's a combination of eccentrics, isometrics, concentrics. But I think probably we got to step back even a layer more on 
what is the true driver of this apathy of whatever it is? It's obviously like a repetitive use issue, but usually whatever their teammate can do the same thing without the apathy. So there's something driving that something weak, something stiff, maybe some training modality that changed for them. Maybe it's sleep, maybe it's recovery. There's a lot of variables there. Um, what are your guys' thoughts when you hear any sort of tendon issue? Like what are your first things you want to be talking about or assessing? Um, I, I'd agree with you. Root cause, like what, why is this occurring? Um, yeah. I think traditionally the approach was just to fix it and send them back out there. I think you, other things I would look at, you nailed it like there, you said sleep, like let's really think about how to recover somebody and make sure that they're not getting chronically stressed physically or mentally nutrition obviously can play a, a massive role when we start talking about anti-inflammatories curcumin omega-3s or other anti-inflammatory um type of foods um and, and i'm seeing some good research around things like sauna therapy red light near infrared therapy and if you really want to be sort of super well a bit more invasive maybe like prp uh, and i've started to see a few athletes go down that route as well of uh, of doing the the, the the PRP injections as well. But it, ultimately, like, if you don't get to that root cause, it's going to rear its head again at some point. Yes, agreed. Cisco, you have any insights on apathies, tendon issues? Um, not that much. That's not <laughs> on my wheelhouse. But uh, no, but I mean, it's just kind of the stuff that you teach and fix, right, Nick? And Mike, yeah. you said it too. It's if the Achilles is giving you the pain the inflammation's there that's not necessarily where the cause is coming from there, there's something along that kinetic chain that mike talked about earlier with with the endurance athletes or something along that chain that's that's off and yeah. you know, kind of figuring out where that misalignment is or where that weakness is and that's what's explaining that check engine light coming on in, in the Achille, in the achilles yeah yeah exactly um that's right, my, I'm gonna, that's the best shot at being a physical therapist. So there you go. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, breaking down the whole treatment paradigm. But um, yeah, my, my only answer was to refer to a specialist. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Eric, I got a good one for you. How do you balance <clears throat> doing what's best for your client versus doing what your client wants? Right. So at least, I mean, you're a little bit more in the sports world than maybe the fitness world, but. Uh, you know, especially in the fitness world, right? They could care less if their form's good. It's more, can they break a sweat and like end up on the floor after their workout when, you know, that's probably the last thing they need if they aren't sleeping, they're super stressed. And then they just add a bunch of stress to their system. That's just one scenario or somebody who wants to do a box jump, but they can't do a, a body weight squat. Uh, we can come up with other ones, but how do you, how do you balance that? I know what this person really needs versus this person really wants x y and z yeah i guess like going into the context of the the population i work with the most which is like high school and college athletes you know a lot of the times it's, it's they have this goal and they have this assumption of what the training process looks like because of instagram yeah. and it's not what it should be yeah. um you know and because of that it starts with the big education process of 
this is really what the training is. And I think it really comes down to some of the work that we've been doing recently. I've been fortunate enough to hire a very well-respected sports scientist in Hayden Maliska. He just came from us from the University of Leeds where he got his master's degree and worked with Leeds Rugby uh, as one of their like GA sports scientists, essentially. Uh, and he's really been helping us kind of objectively quantify our training process. And with that comes showing past success stories. So I have an athlete who wants to take two or three tenths off of his 40 you know, we come and say, this is your goal. Here's an example of an athlete who had the exact same goal, who had the exact same starting point, who has the exact same general timelines. And here's his outcome of running faster. Is this what you want? Yeah. Okay. Well, here was what the process looked like. It might not look like what you think, but here's what the process looks like. And we're going to retest these things frequently so that you can see success on success on success and start to buy into the process. Now, with that being said, I'm not ignorant to the fact that a lot of the athletes we work with are relatively untrained. So anything is going to work, but there is an optimal opportunity for effectiveness in the training program. But with that being said, we give them autonomy and we operate off of this 80-20 rule where it's 80% of the time we do exactly what we want. And 20% of the time we give them the option to do things within a bandwidth of what we deem is valuable and acceptable. So an example is we always give them an opportunity during our arm farm part of the workout to pick a variation of a bicep curl. And that brings in ownership into the process because they're making the decision on what exercise they're going to do. So the intent is higher. They feel like they have a voice in the process. They're getting some of that itch fed, so to speak. And it gives us indirect and direct buying coming back to doing more of what we want to do. And then once they get that positive outcome of running that better time in this example, then they're full send hundred percent. So it's kind of, you know, bleeding it in and kind of leading the horse to water, so to speak. Well said. Yeah. Um, Cisco, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and maybe management of like the, the youth athlete. It's got to be a little different scenario if you have a 13 year old. Um, just for IT issues, it looks like Zoom might kick me off in a couple minutes, but let's see how this goes. I'm going to try to keep it going, but I'll let you know if I have IT issues. Uh, go for it, Cisco. How do you how would you answer that question? Yeah, I mean, um, it's finding ways to create that autonomy with with middle school kids or middle school and elementary school kids. And uh, Eric said, it, it's all, it's all education and it's educating them, but as well as the parents on, this is what we, this is what we do. This is what I believe in. This is, you know, going back to what even Mike talked about. This is what the evidence shows. And from the very beginning, you know, I'm very clear with, you know, like, yeah, like I'm not going to make your kid puke. It's, you know, being yeah. sore is not the best indicator that, they have the best workout and um, communicating that with them from the very beginning. Then it, when it comes to exercise selection, you know, I, t I basically tell them the first six sessions or so, like you pretty much have to do what I tell you to do. And now granted, I'm working with a different population than Eric in the sense that, you know, these middle school kids aren't on social media for the sake of like exercising and training. Like they're on, they're doing dances and, and all that type of stuff, which is different. Yeah. So they don't really know anything else, which makes my job a little bit easier. Yeah. But the hard thing for me is the attention span and creating enough buy-in that they want to come on, on the days that they're scheduled to come. Yeah. Um, and so I tell them like, this is what you're good at. Here are the exercises that you're really, really good at. Here are the exercises that we need to work on. And then I create like some sort of dangling carrot, like, 
you know, in order to get, you know, they see the big exercise in order to get to the trap bar deadlift, you have to show me that you can do this kettlebell deadlift. And it's kind of that system of progressions and regressions that when they get to certain points, I ask them, okay, give me an example of a hip hinge. Again, this is all education. They list off the three or four exercises that we do. On certain days, I'll say, you know what, you've earned it. You know, you've, you've stuck with the process that Eric was talking about. You know, for this week and this, to, the two sessions during this week, you get to design what you want to do. Here are the categories. Like, you know, we go, this yeah. is how we start. They know the power and speed exercise. They know the push, pull. Like, you, well, you obviously know we have to fulfill these buckets, but you get to tell me what exercises and you get to tell me the sets and reps that you want to do. Um, and that's kind of my way of creating like, oh, I have some choice. But for me in my head, I'm thinking. All right, audience. Sorry, we just had some IT issues. We'll, we'll kind of get back to, to where we are at here. Cisco, sorry, I got interrupted. Can you just finish your thought? You were saying a little bit about just letting them have some autonomy and how you kind of coach that up. Yeah. So, you know, throughout the process is educating them on the names of exercises and where, what bucket they fill in in regards to the the, the, the training template for the day and, you know, categorize categories of exercises that when they get to a certain point, they can earn the right to choose what exercise they do. So in their head, they're designing the whole workout, but in my head, they're still following the flow of the, the process. They're still getting a push, a pull, a squat, a hip hinge, you know, a speed power, like they're fill, they're still filling my buckets. They're still working towards their goals, mm -hmm. but they also have the opportunity to say, you know, look at the list of exercises. Like I want to do that today. I want to do this today. So it's almost like a menu yeah. that gets created. Okay. Again, they have to earn it. It's something that's definitely earned. It's kind of funny from my point of view, right? So I'm doing more of like the health and wellness side of things is I almost have the opposite issue where I like dictate too much of it and I got to let them kind of choose it a little bit. So whatever let's say like they really like deadlifts and it's causing back pain um eventually i just gotta get them to be deadlifting the darn bar and like do the real thing even though i know there's 12 other things i need to get better it's just like let them grip it and rip it sometimes uh mike you have anything michael you have anything to add there yeah i think i think you you said the word menu there one one thing i used to do in a protein setting with for recovery we used to build out basically a recovery menu and would have a number of different modalities that we were trying to get them to do, and we would weight them with points. And all we would say to them is, hey, go and get 150 points. Well, I like that. And, that. and then we would weight things like the masser. You go and see the masser, it's 15 points. You go and do self-myofascial release, it might be five points. You go and do the ice bath, it's seven points. So whatever it was, yeah. Yeah. really just say to them, there's the modalities go and get your points for the day from like nutrition mindset movement what all, all the all the buckets and that was really successful because when you're in that pro environment they sort of work on their own schedule a little bit as well so like it's yeah. literally like herding cats trying to get them in one place at one time after, yeah. after training so yeah that was something i used to do in, in that pro environment so this, this next question, I think is an interesting one, but really piggybacks well off of that one is like movement quality. So obviously we want to see like the most rip roaring, whatever front squat or kettlebell swing, but when do you allow movement errors and when do you stop them? You know, one quote is like, 
perfection is often like, I'm going to butcher this perfection is the barrier to progress. Something of that nature where if you're over cueing, over coaching, you only want to see the finest of movement. You're actually probably going to hinder them versus letting them fail, have some sloppy movement, figure it out. Um, how do you guys go? What's your mentality on coaching movement quality? When do you allow airs? When do you stop? Uh, is there like a coaching strategy you have there in regards to, you know, if they do three or four reps of it, that's enough. How, how would you guys grasp that concept or answer that question? Yeah, I guess I can take this on a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I guess like, you know, first and foremost, I'm a big believer in like the constraint led approach or like the ecological approach for like motor learning or skill acquisition. And so essentially that's manipulating a lot of like the task or environmental constraints to help athletes self-organize and solve a movement problem. And that's under the assumption that there is no such thing as perfect movement. You know, I would love someone to define to me what a perfect squat is <laughs> yeah. or what perfect sprinting yeah. technique is. You know, I've been fortunate to coach three guys now who have ran sub four, four laser times in every single one of them, their 40 yard dash te technique looks different, but what they have is these global attractors of hitting appropriate positions, but how they get to their positions are their own athlete signature based off of their pushers, their puller, their muscular dominant, their elastic dominant, their anthropometrics, you know, their movement solutions to solve this problem, i.e. run as fast as possible. So within a bandwidth or a spectrum of appropriate that we don't deem as dangerous or disadvantageous to the point of a decrement in performance, we let them explore and self-organize in a way that allows them to give us the best raw output. So um, I don't think that there's a perfect technique. And I think that, you know, if you look at a lot of the motor learning research, I think it's somewhere around a 30 to 40% error rate uh, is optimal for learning or acquiring a novel skill or a task. So, you know, coaching only perfection, in my opinion, is just refining a quality that you've already established. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Uh, I think hopefully people are starting to get past the mindset of like, whatever, if you bend your back once that your back's going to explode, like our system's durable, like you can mess stuff up a lot before any issues happen. Um, and sometimes, like we were saying before, like an air can actually be a good learning experience. Uh, what about you, Michael? How would you answer that question? Um, and I look at function, form and force. And I think I'd start with function. Like, so yeah. re really understanding things like, do they have correct range of motion and do they have good neuromuscular efficiency because that's going to really set them up for their form like the coaching part and, yeah. and production of force so I'm a big big one for assessment movement assessment and I'm a big one for having targeted uh, self-care I think when it comes to lifting and training I think I think there's there's a time to be very strict and coach and I think Eric said it there it's like risk reward if they're at high risk of hurting themselves then you're gonna to have to get in there and, and and make sure that nothing crazy is going to happen but we're definitely seeing the rise now of more um let's call it flow-based training where we're trying to get our athletes into different planes of motion at different velocities and it's almost like a signature no, nobody's looks the same yeah because everyone's slightly different and and it and i think yes there's a time to to coach and get in there and make sure someone's doing sure doing the right thing but i think we've got to 
make sure that it's the right the right coaching at the right time and, and let people go and flow and explore as well as coach them. So that's that's a mixture of the art and the science, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Um, you know, good, just a tangent, good resource for just movement and learning. And I think all of us know him indirectly is Nick Winkleman. He always has a quote that stuck with me on one of his talks that I went to. I can't remember what the context was. But he's saying our body can only comprehend seven external cues at one time. And an external cue is uh, like a fan going, the music, what the person next to him is doing, your coaching. Uh, who knows? Maybe they're stressed about something at the same point. So if you go in and provide seven cues and do that on every single rep, really none of those are going to be able to, to stick. Um, again, in my world, you know, you'll see like, PTs like hugging people until they do the right form where it's just like way overbearing. Um, what about, what about you, Cisco? What's, what's your philosophy there? Um, I really like that quote that you started off with. I actually have never, never heard that quote, but yeah. um, I kind of had this, this personal revelation on this same topic a couple of years ago where it, like good enough is good enough. Like I, I like, so with the population that I've been primarily working with over the past three years, their bodies are constantly changing. Um, my, my daughter's a perfect example. Just a year and a half ago, like she squatted really, really well. Yeah. In those past 15 months, she's had a major growth spurt where her limbs are extremely long. Yeah. She's going through that phase of trying to control now these new, you know, longer levers, you know, she has, traditionally has a, had a very weak core that she, now she has a really hard time just doing a bilateral squat. Yeah. And so obviously with me, I'm not doing super complex movements with these kids is just trying to get them to understand what a push and a pull and a squat and a hip hinge yeah. is like, but I was beating myself up with kids at like with a kettlebell deadlift, for example, like they were PVC piping things for like five weeks. I'm just like, we're not getting it. We're not getting anywhere here. And it yeah. was funny how all of a sudden I was like, you know what? Pick it up. Like, just let's go to the 50 pound kettlebell and just pick it up. And let's just do that 10 times. And all of a sudden, not only were they getting stronger, but then all of a sudden, kind of like what Eric was talking about, just that task of having to pick up a 50 pound kettlebell, their body, their mind just reorganized in a way where I was like, oh, there we go. There we go. That's, yes. that's almost all that she needed. And I got over the whole neutral spine yeah. And just not more to like a neutral zone. Like if you, if it looks okay and the, if it does it hurt, no. Okay. Well, it doesn't look like complete crap to me and yeah. you know, it, it looks okay. And I've, I've, I've learned to live with, okay. Like it's, yeah. you know, it's, you're not hurting yourself. Are you, you're getting stronger. Aren't you, you feel better about yourself. Aren't you? Okay. Well that, that's, that's all we progress. need to do. Yeah. yeah. Progress. Yeah, I also think not to not to cut anybody off. I also think just as like a unique thought experiment, um, you know, especially when you think about high performance and the example of sprinting, right? So sprinting is a high brain activity, so it never reaches the conscious mind. So it's uh, volitional and, and reactionary. So in that regard, if you overcue somebody, you give them such a high cognitive load, even though their technique might look better, they actually, their output might be slower because they're thinking too much and they're not just having a volitional reaction of running fast. What I've loosely started deeming like cognitive inhibition almost, which yeah. isn't an appropriate term. And I just kind of made it up. But <laughs> what I see more often than not is like, I make this joke. It's like, I see all these kids who, you know, look really good running slow. So like just run fast. 
stop thinking so much and just run fast, you know, within appropriate bandwidth of good enough. Yeah. Just run fast. It, yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. Cause you know, I remember when I first started this, I wanted to be like Eric and I wanted to have, you know, people that I worked with just look really good sprinting that I got so caught up on doing all these like overhead skips with med balls and looking for posture <laughs> and, and all this type yeah. of stuff. And like Eric, like you said, like they started running and they just looked so uncomfortable running sprints that when I was like, screw it, just sprint, just run. And all of a sudden I saw, I, I started to see times go down and I, I wasn't fi fixing their arms. I wasn't fixing their posture. I wasn't fixing their lean. I just said, I just want you to run as hard as you can. And I, and I actually started to see results yeah. at that point because I'm not training track athletes. I'm, I'm just training kids that just want to play. They just want to play sports. Yeah. Well said. All right. Let's do last, last question here, which is probably the most popular top popular topic in strength and conditioning is just speed, agility, power. We'll call that all one topic. Um, you know, a lot of coaches take courses in it, want to learn more about it. A lot of the clients that we're training that's basically all they want is to like run faster and jump higher they don't care what it takes to achieve it what do you guys see as gaps in the progression of speed work what are people often overlooking when they're trying to again improve speed improve power output improve force production how would you guys answer that i'll let michael go first just because he's been off for a little bit well, for me personally, Nick, it's DNA, but I can't really do <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't have that DNA. I don't have that. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all endurance. Now, I, think, I, I, I think the good analogy is, is the bigger engine in the same size car. And, and that's what a lot of people can go towards. They'll just say, bigger, faster, stronger. And they don't care at what cost. And I think we, we start to understand that connective tissue can take longer to adapt than the, the muscle. So if that's the case and we're just getting bigger muscles, bigger engine, something's having to take that strain. So I think, again, it comes back to having a plan, making sure you're periodized in your training. There's a reason why the stability and endurance work is important as a foundation of strength is because it's absolutely that. It builds you a strong foundation to go and build your strength to then go and build your power and then to revisit it again. And, 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 and to, to Eric's point earlier, don't get stuck in a cycle of, I'm just going to train strength and power and that's all I'm going to do. So periodization, like the, the literature's out there, it exists, like follow-up evidence-based plan that, that, that gives you a well-rounded program. And I think there's, there's big differences as well from team sports to track. Like we start looking at, Team sports, they want to get faster. Like, I want to be faster. I want to be quicker. It's not always mechanical. Sometimes it's cognitive. And that's another big miss, I think, where people don't train. So they'll say, I'm going to, I'm going to train agility. So you run here, run here, and run here. Like, really, if you look at the literature, that's not agility. That's change of direction. Yeah. True agility is a, a stimulus and a response. So like you're going to have to start to train reaction times like that visual acuity to make somebody faster as well. It's not all about just like building stronger muscles and, 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 and force velocity curves. It's, it's important, but it's one part of it. And I think I would really push on and say, 
big periodized plans, whether it's undulating or, or classical periodization, the, the, people need a bit of everything. Otherwise, you, you, you're just going to be very one-dimensional. And, and, and I think that would be my my uh, learnings in, in the last sort yeah. of 20 years of doing this. Okay. Uh, what about you, Cisco? What do you think is a gap that people miss in speed and power work? Um, I, I kind of mentioned it earlier. Um, I, I think sometimes... Uh, some coaches and and even parents can get caught up in like just drills, drills, drills to do drills. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, and I tell parents, you know, when was the last time your kid like really sprinted, you know, they say, because they say they want to come in and be faster. It's like, yeah. when do they really sprint? And, um, you know, I, I remember, well, I just know watching some of like Mike Boyle stuff on, on Instagram and, you know, he'll post people with these really, really good flying 10 times. And, you've got those, you know, guys on social media that just pick apart their technique. And he's just like, <laughs> did you just not see him run like 0.99 right. seconds and you know, the, the, in the, in the flying 10, but you're going to pick apart his arm action and all this type of stuff. And, and so for me, you know, I've gotten caught up in, you know, lots of drills. And like I mentioned earlier, as soon as I just told, or I tried to get to know the kid better to what I call release the parking brake and just get them to go. And all of a sudden they see their times and, and it's like what Eric said, like, it's not supposed to be conscious. Like you're not supposed to think about this. And that's kind of where the coaching comes into play, right? Getting to know, you know, the affective piece, like knowing who you're working with and kind of understanding what their hesitations are. Um, so when it comes to sprint training, it's, it's for me personally, over the past couple of years, getting to know the kid, understanding what makes them tick, also what their hesitations and their anxieties are and really trying to get them to release that parking brake so they could just go. And then a stopwatch and a timing system, that's it. And just measuring their progress and making sure that their efforts are consistent. And also you see, you see these times start to drop. Yeah. What about you, Eric? I'll let you wrap it up. What's yeah, I think, uh, yeah. yeah, one big thing for sure is like just the true understanding of transfer and diminishing returns in regards to developing speed. You know what I mean? Depending on the qualification of the athlete that you're working with, some things will really move the needle and some won't. So for an example, with some of my high school kids, I just get them stronger and get them a, a low dose exposure to speed work. Their forties drop dramatically with some of the NFL guys we have, you know, we had to get a bit uh, more unique and leverage some things like JB Marin talks about with like, you know, load velocity profiling, resistant sprinting, and then, you know, learning how to apply force in the appropriate direction and the appropriate cadence uh, in a more specific manner. Um, so I think the biggest one is understanding the transfer and diminishing returns. And then I think the second biggest one, and it, and I mean, that answers and goes a lot with what Mike said. Whoever said periodization is not a thing lately is like off the rocker. It is completely a thing and I follow it to T and it works. But also to Cisco's point in regards to the timing units and just running fast, I think people don't have an appreciation for what true speed work looks like in regards to rest intervals needed for full recovery to give maximal output again. And also like threshold. So for us, we leverage a threshold cutoff. So I say this is the amount of volume you have in a session that we deem is enough to make an adaptation or if your sprint start to drop below this threshold of your best, because at that point you're not running fast enough to make a neurological change in speed. And you're just accruing useless fatigue that we could reappropriate to something that has value in the session. So um, I think those are really like the big ones for me. 
Can I can I just add one in there, Nick? Because I think of course, important point Eric made there. If you're going to train power and speed, you better make sure your athlete's ready to receive that stimulus. Because if they're fatigued and not ready to receive it, you you're literally wasting your time. You 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 may as well not do anything because it'd be better than doing the strength or the speed session you're about to do. And I know it's tough to try and recognize readiness and and there's many debates that we're having at the moment but eric's point there maybe they only need one one rep one set and you're they're done like yeah. don't always need to say oh i plan to do eight eight sets and four reps and if i don't do that they're not going to adapt it's like no like you, they're not either producing the force or the, or the times like call it like that that's why you're there as a yeah. coach to call it yeah. You know, to that point, we, we used to leverage a lot of the things like Omega Wave or jump testing and things like that to look at readiness. And they were valuable. I'd argue a little noisy in the private sector because you can't control a lot of these variables. You know, you give someone an Omega Wave right after a stressful car ride, and then maybe they have an acute all red, but really chronically, they're completely recovered. So what we started doing is once we found their best, we have these threshold cutoffs and it's almost like fluid readiness testing where it's if they hit two sprints that are below their threshold time, we deem their nervous system is not prepared to continue the session and we move on to the next quality. Um, and so that's kind of our way of trying to combat what, what Michael was talking about, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the greatest output you can really give in the human organism. Like I hope you're, you're prepared for this session to do it. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, all right, guys. Well, appreciate, appreciate your time. I know I'll post this on our NSC outlets, NSCA outlets and everything, but you guys did awesome answering all those questions. Uh, I know you got busy lives and lots going on, so I appreciate you taking the time. Um, yeah, maybe we do this again down the road with some different topics, but uh, let's keep in touch, and thanks a bunch. Thanks, Nick. It was fun. Thank you. Yep, all right, guys. Good seeing you yeah, guys. appreciate you guys. All right, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get more information at capacitypt.com. Feel free to write emails to nickh at capacitypt.com. Follow us on Instagram, on Facebook, um, as well as uh, subscribe on the podcast on any and all platforms. Thanks for listening and have a good rest of your day.